From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Starting the show, though, looking at what is happening with federal politics. This was not an easy decision. It's always tricky to figure out the best timing for such a step, but I feel it's the right time for me. I've had an incredible journey in public service. As the Minister of Transport, I helped lead our country through many challenging issues. We protected Canadians during COVID while supporting the transportation industry during an extraordinary period. That is Transport Minister, or was Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra, talking about the fact that he is leaving that cabinet post and will not be seeking re-election. He is one of several cabinet ministers uh, talking about that, saying that they will not be running again in the next federal election. And this is all coming ahead of a much-anticipated cabinet shuffle. Joining us now is Peter Greif, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at McMaster University. Thank you so much for taking Taking some time today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, how significant is it that we've now seen several high-profile cabinet ministers say they will not be seeking re-election? Well, I think it's kind of expected. Although, I mean, we're only not even quite two years into the term of this government, so it's maybe an indication if the prime minister is asking who's going to be there after the next election that he's looking at a kind of a 12 to 18 month window uh, in terms of when we're next going to the polls. Uh, you know, to have about uh, just over 10% of your cabinet say they aren't going to run again, it's actually not that large a number. I mean, these are people who in many cases have served for many years, and the, the decision to want to sign on for another four years can be, you know, a difficult one. I guess the other piece of it is, you know, it's hard to know whether they've decided they don't run to run again or whether they were informed they were going to be excluded from the cabinet, and, you know, in which case uh, it maybe makes their decision a bit easier about whether they, they want to uh, run again. Although, you know, in the case of uh, Joyce Murray or Helena Jacek uh, or a, a Carolyn Bennett, it, it's most likely that they've been around a long time and feel that they don't want to, to spend, you know, another four years commuting to Ottawa. Right. And the the timing, though, and you mentioned that with the timing of the next election, not until 2025, and how far this government is with this mandate. D- does that seem at all odd that it's not as though an election, yes, there's going to be a cabinet shuffle, but it's not as though there's an election right around the corner? No, I mean, that's true, although we are in a minority government situation, and probably a sense that when the uh, you know, the uh, agreement with the NDP about, uh, you know, that certain policies in exchange for the support of the NDP on, on money votes expires, uh, you know, in about uh, a year's time. You know, that may be a, a kind of a natural time when we'll expect uh, an election, either from, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau feeling that it'll be easier to go to the polls and to try and find a way to have support in the House of Commons, uh, but maybe also from the point of view of the NDP, which is going to try and distinguish itself, I think, more and more from the Liberals in the coming year, um, so that they can run successfully in the, in the next campaign. And I think we saw that with uh, Jagmeet Singh's decision to bring forward a pharmacare bill to try and shame the Liberals into action on, on that front. I think is an indication that the NDP is, is willing in the coming year to, to do things that may harm or embarrass the Liberal government, Uh, you know, again, to make sure that they have some uh, clear grounds on which they're running in, in the coming campaign. Right, not just running on uh, as the the party that that has supported this government. Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect already they're going to try and emphasize their role in bringing dental care forward. But 
yeah, I mean, running to support the Liberals, well, if you like the Liberals, then you'll vote for the Liberals, and if you don't like them, then it kind of makes the Conservatives a choice. So the NDP is in a in a difficult spot. Um, you know, they were able to win some things by uh, agreeing to support the Liberal government, uh, but it does come at a cost where it's very difficult when election comes closer to, to differentiate yourself and convince people that you're a party worth uh, voting for uh, on its own front. Uh, you mentioned that in uh, some of the cases of the the announcements of the cabinet ministers not seeking re-election, in some cases it could be because they've already been told that they are losing that post. Uh, the CBC is uh, running a story right now uh, saying that sources with knowledge of the cabinet shuffle are, are also saying that Marco Mendicino will be uh, shuffled out of his portfolio. Uh, people will remember that he has come under a lot of fire for uh, what he knew or didn't know about the transfer of serial killer Paul Bernardo. Uh, any surprise that Marco Mendicino is going to be shuffled out? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, I think even as the government was going into the summer recess, people were asking, why was he still in cabinet? Uh, uh, you know, if there was a uh, most likely person uh, to be shuffled out, it, it would be him. And so regardless of what uh, Prime Minister Trudeau thinks uh, of, of his performance, uh, although it, you know it's been one that's caused a lot of embarrassment for the government. Uh, you know, to keep him on at this stage would really just invite uh, a rehearsal of all the uh, faux pas and errors that uh, Mr. Medincito made, and uh, presumably not uh, the sort of uh, news that you want coming out of a cabinet shuffle if you're the Prime Minister, where you want it framed much more around. Uh, you know, here's a team of interesting people uh, who are bringing the government forward. So, uh, you know, regardless of his assessment of Mr. Mendicino, I think he had to go uh, simply in, in terms of the visibility and, and the way in which Canadians are going to look at this uh, cabinet shuffle. Uh, does it show a, a shift in in kind of the focus, or if we see the shuffle where where these well known names, people that have been in this for several years, are out, they're not going to be seeking re-election. If we see uh, new uh, new names, uh, maybe that people aren't familiar with, is that a way for this government to kind of shift focus, or or say it's going back to to focusing on, on things uh, such as uh, housing or, or other other issues that are perhaps top of mind for Canadians? Yeah, I'm sure, you know, that there will be a push from a public relations perspective to say, look, these two or three people being put in these positions signals, you know, why this is important for our government. And, you know, that will have some play, although I think the average Canadian, if we went out into the street, uh, would have a hard time naming, you know, three cabinet ministers. Uh, So, you know, sometimes I think it's a bit overstated what, you know, these shuffles do in terms of uh, of what they signal to Canadians. I think in most cases, people really uh, put all the credit and all the blame on the Prime Minister. Um, so, you know, these changes, again, at the margins and for people who are watching closely are a signal about what files the government uh, is most interested in putting forward when the when certain ministers are placed, uh, you know, particularly trusted and competent ones in, in certain files. It, it signals that to us, but I think to the average Canadian uh, in most cases, it doesn't have a huge impact. Although, you know, people will be looking in their provinces and their cities to say, well, do we have representation at the cabinet table? Because they realize that having that representation can be important in, in having a voice and being heard. And so in that way, you know, say the departure of Joyce Murray will be, you know, one that will be important for uh, British Columbia. You know, does the fisheries portfolio stay in the hands of a, a British Columbia minister or does it go to the Atlantic uh, as it has sometimes in the past, and and who might replace Joyce Murray 
to maintain a strong representation from BC in the cabinet. So I, I think in some ways those questions are maybe more crucial uh, in terms of how people are responding to the shuffle. And does this shed any light, do you think, or the fact that we are seeing so many ministers, uh, the number was at least four, uh, now in that CBC report saying at least seven ministers saying they're not running for re-election. Can you read anything into that in that are they uh, concerned about the popularity of the prime minister, about what could potentially happen in the next federal election uh, if the popularity of Pierre Poiliev and the Conservatives grows? Well, I think from the point of view of, of, of people watching it, a large number leading, leaving will you know, lead them to, to raise precisely that question. Uh, are they leaving a sinking ship? But probably when we look, there's a, you know, a variety of, of different uh, con- uh, considerations. I'm sure for some of them it's precisely that. You know, they don't necessarily want to go through uh, the really difficult thing of an election uh, and, and of winning the confidence of their electors only to sit on the back benches. So if they figure that Poliever is likely to win, it's maybe a reason they want to set, step down. For others, you know, you might think of someone like Helena Jacek, uh, who had had important roles in the Ontario uh, cabinet, uh, you know, but hasn't really uh, been given a whole lot of confidence or space in the federal cabinet. It may be one more of, if you like, stunted ambition, that uh, it hasn't been that interesting to be a federal member or a member of the federal cabinet, and there's a desire to move on to other opportunities. And, you know, for still others, uh, they've been at this for years and years, and it's an exhausting job, you know, particularly for people who have to commute uh, to Ottawa from, you know, uh, from Vancouver or, uh, you know, from uh, the outer regions of Canada. And in in that kind of situation, there's reasons why you don't want to spend your entire life as as a member of Parliament, including as a cabinet minister. So among those seven, we probably find many different uh, motivations. But I suspect a lot of Canadians will be saying, well, no, this is a sign that it's a government that's having a hard time maintaining its talent or retaining its talent. Uh, Another sign that it's an aging government that maybe needs to be replaced. We will wait and see what the shuffle looks like uh, expected tomorrow. Peter Grafe, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Well, a Vancouver City Councillor says he is going to be looking into how many illegal short-term rental units are currently operating in the city of Vancouver. And he is going to be joining the Jazz Joe Hall Show later this afternoon to talk more about that. That, as some concerns have been made about the number of listings on sites like Airbnb, the fact that that number is growing, even though there are regulations in place, aimed at limiting the number of properties that are being used for short-term rentals. Joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Sir Somerville, Professor of Real Estate Finance at the UBC Souter School of Business. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Jill. How, do we know how big of an issue short-term rentals are right now as far as taking potential rental stock out of the inventory? Or the registered... Uh, Airbnb units, and if we assume that they're they're sort of following the regulations, then you actually aren't removing any rental stock. I think the whole problem is the issue of how accurate that is, who's people actually following the rules, and then units that aren't registered at all. Right. Okay. And because the, 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 the reason, right, is, that, is like if you're following the rules, then there are a limited number of, of days that you can rent it out. It has to be your you know your principal unit. There's all kinds of sort of restrictions that would limit Airbnb to sort of the original purpose, which is, oh, well, I'm going out of town, I'm going to rent my my house, or we've got a spare bedroom or something like that. 
Um, and that's, you know, that's not the, the problem. The problem is, is it's essentially being existing to, to be Airbnb instead of housing um, local residents. Right. So as it stands now with the regulations, if we're looking specifically at the city of Vancouver, you have to have a valid business license to operate it as a short term rental. And as you mentioned, it has to be your principal residence. So but when we talk about people finding loopholes, are are, are people finding loopholes in that maybe it's a separate suite that's in my principal residence? So you don't actually have to be out of town to rent it out. or, or, Or do we think that maybe that's how people are getting around the regulations? Well, it would not apply. I mean, they wouldn't be able to get around it for a legal basement suite um, because the the legal basement suite doesn't isn't isn't a venue that lets the um, restrictions. Now, if it's an illegal suite, then it's not an actual unit. I think a much greater concern is essentially people who are not following the rules in one way or the other. I mean that 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 I think is where we our our, our concern is, um, not whether or not the rules are okay, but whether or not they're actually enforced, followed, and um, and their consequences. Right, and and where do you think that falls then, as far as uh, the, the city of Vancouver obviously does some enforcement on this. Uh, my guess is there are so many of these listings, uh, may, maybe there it would be impossible to catch them all. But is it is it the city's job to do the enforcement, or does some of that uh, accountability lie with the platform, with Airbnb or or any platform that someone's using for this? Well, you know, a, a couple of quick comments, right? Just because there are more units being listed, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're being listed illegally, right? Just that that that's not proof of that, right? We can all decide, wow, there are a lot of tourists. The tourists are back, so we're all gonna, you know, rent out the bedroom where you know a spare bedroom, or we're gonna go the way this weekend. We're gonna rent the unit out, or whatever it is, right? Or you know, so so more listings isn't in and of itself proof of, of illegal listings. So, you know, just from a data standpoint, um, I think the city of Vancouver has a challenge without the cooperation of the platforms. And I, I don't know enough about sort of the legal framework there, but, you know, my sense is, is or, or understanding is, is that we don't hold the platforms responsible for uh, illegal activity by people listing on the, on the platforms. And, you know, fundamentally that, that makes it a challenge for enforcement at the municipal level. Right. And, and I guess the, the argument would be there from the platform uh, would be more of, well, they're a global platform and maybe there are different rules in different jurisdictions. And that would be that's not really what they're there for, that they're there for they're there to provide that service and people can list their rentals. But if you are listing your rental, you should know the rules in your jurisdiction and follow them. Well, I mean, there are two ways to look at it. Right. I think from their perspective is they're just the listing site. Therefore, they have no responsibility, which is the same thing that, you know, YouTube and Google and whoever else Twitter use for why they're not responsible for what happens uh, in the language on, on their site. Uh, but that is a little bit of a cop out in the sense that, you know, because they're, they're in this space where we allow this, where we wouldn't allow a corporation uh, to do the, do, the, do the same things. Right. You, you know, you as, as chorus have rules on what you can do that a platform doesn't have. Um, because the platform in some sense is viewed as arm's length. And, and I think there's a legitimate question that that model is, is really not appropriate given sort of the reach and, and, and strength of, of platforms both in the, in the, in the market and all the way to you know, the, the platforms hosting information content.
Right. When we look at the listings, too, and I get what you're saying, just because there are more listings doesn't mean there's more illegal activity. But I think one of the the things that has been pointed out is that there are listings for, say, laneway homes and or, or those which which clearly, or maybe not, but it seems like a laneway house would be something that that's not a principal residence. That's that's something that somebody's renting out on a short-term rental base, where it, it could potentially be a long-term rental unit. Yeah, like like you know, I, I'm being a little bit pedantic because that's what academics get to do, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's it's part of our job description. So. You know, but the, the, it's, it's the kind of thing you're r- worried about, right? Hey, we have these rules on laneways because we want the laneways to be there providing rental housing. But if, if I'm the owner of the laneway, it's a very convenient way to do um, Airbnb without it in, uh, affecting me and my, and my principal residence. And so I would say that it's, it, it's certainly the kind of thing to be suspicious of because, how, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to do that. I don't have to move out of my, out of my, out of my house. But we have, you know, condos that seem to be basically in the permanent short-term rental business. When you go online and you see these these condos that are decorated entirely from IKEA, and every single thing on the wall is also an IKEA, you know, print. Not, I think people don't actually do that in places they live. So, you know, it does it does raise suspicion. Um, I, I guess the enforcement is on the city of Vancouver, but without cooperation from the the platforms, it, it, it is challenging. Oh, for sure. Uh, is it also, do you think, and I remember when the regulations came out, there was a fair amount of pushback in that there there are scenarios where, say, someone does have a laneway house or has a, a fully contained basement suite, but it's used when their kids come back from university for four months of the year, or it's used uh, when they come back, when they or maybe they're snowbirds and they're back here. And it's not, it's not something that would be in the long-term rental stock anyway. So the choice is it's either empty or it's somebody using it for short-term rental and and is there perhaps that justification that it should be allowed to be used that way you know I, you know every all these things are slippery slopes right and so you kind of have to draw the lines some places you know, the empty homes tax in the city of vancouver and the speculation and vacancy tax in for the for the, the province you know kind of have like a six month sort of uh window like it, it's your residence if you're there at least six months of the year um and so if somebody's only here for four months of the year um, then it probably should be rented out. You know, I, we're, we're kind of having to, to to put constraints on people's exercise of private property because we have such a, a catastrophic situation in the housing market. Um, and, and that sort of pushes us in, 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 in that, that direction. I'm sure there's sort of wiggle room around the edges. Uh, but, you know, like if you have a, if you have a, a a laneway or a legal basement suite. The objective and the reason why those are allowed, right, and the zoning allows those things is for those things to provide housing for people on a permanent basis. Otherwise, you wouldn't be allowed to do those things, right? That, that's why we had the, the laneway act was not, oh, you know, we want to enable people to be snowbirds more regularly. Right. Right. So what do you think needs to be done then? And again, uh, Lenny Joe, who's a city councillor, says he's working to try and figure out what's going on here, uh, how many illegal short-term units are operating. I, I mean, is that what needs to be done and more enforcement cracking down on this? Or, or where do you see this going? Well, I mean, look, I, I think enforcement is always a very good way to do it. And you can certainly, you know, and to the extent that the, the, the city can 
you know, again, there are, there are legal issues here that I don't understand, right? You know, can the city, you know, pretend to be a, have someone pretend to be looking for an Airbnb unit and inquire about it and find out about it and see if it matches? And, you know, there, there are various steps there. Obviously, the, the, the most effective way to have this work is with the participation and the cooperation of the platforms, but they obviously are, are very reluctant to do anything that would restrict or constrain their business in any way. And, and that would probably require not a, a city councilor from the city of Vancouver, but, you know, parliament. Well, it's an interesting one that is being looked at a bit more closely right now. Sewer Somerville, thank you. As always, great to chat with you today. It's always a pleasure, Joe. You have a great day. As you heard on the news, the Amber Alert in this province is now in day six and the public is being asked to keep their eyes out to keep and uh, keep watch for eight-year-old Aurora Bolton and 10-year-old Joshua Bolton. We also heard some updated information from Surrey RCMP and joining us now is Corporal Vanessa Munn, Media Relations Officer with the Surrey RCMP. Corporal, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Jill. We know from, from what was released yesterday, a, a bit of updated information. And one of the things that, that the suspects potentially have gone off the grid, how, how does that change things as far as how law enforcement, as far as how police deal with the missing children? So, I mean, we're still actively working to follow up on all tips that we receive. Um, this has obviously, you know, broadened our search even more. And we're really asking people to be vigilant when they are traveling those back roads or in the back country, or even people who sort of live a little bit more, um, as we say, off the grid to, you know, be cognizant of their surroundings and to call in any information that they feel could be useful to police. Uh, we know the last time or the photo, the last time that Verity Bolton was seen was July 15th. So 10 days ago, uh, you would think that there, there will come a point where they will run out of supplies or run out of food or with them living off the grid. Uh, does that mean that they can be self-sufficient or they have the means of being self-sufficient? We believe they do have the means of being self-sufficient to a certain extent. However, um, we're not completely sure at this time to what extent that is, at what point in time they may need more supplies, or if they are fully capable of going for long periods of time um, without attending a, you know, a local city centre to reload on supplies. Uh, do you know if, if uh, Braxis Glazov, who is believed to be uh, traveling with the group, uh, he's described in, as an, an experienced outdoorsman, uh, somebody who has lived off the grid in the past. D does that mean that he has hunting rifles with him? I'm not able to speak specifically to whether or not he has hunting rifles with him. What we do know is that he is an outdoorsman. He has a history of living off the grid um, and that he enjoys fishing. Uh, also, uh, with uh, an older gentleman who uh, police I know had said that he may seem to be confused or a bit disoriented, uh, and that uh, being Verity Bolton's father, um, is there is there the thought then that they might have to get medication for him, or is he in a position where his health is going to deteriorate? That is something we're actively working to determine. Um, I mean. 
at this point in time, we're really concerned for the health and well-being of everyone that is involved in this investigation, um, especially given the fact that we do believe they're off the grid. We've been experiencing hot weather conditions. There have been, you know, lots of fires in the interior area, and we're not exactly sure where they're at. Um, everyone kind of that's involved in this situation is at risk. Our primary focus is clearly bringing home Aurora and Joshua safely. And has the area changed at all then as far as what area is still under the Amber Alert or where the investigation is focused? The investigation at this point has been focused um, a little bit more around the Kamloops area. However, with that said, we are getting tips from other areas and we are following up on all tips. Um, The last confirmed sighting of Verity was on July 15th in Kamloops, BC. So that has been a little bit more of our focus. And how are the tips coming in as far as numbers? Are you still getting a lot of tips from the public? We continue to get lots of tips daily, and we are extremely appreciative of everyone who's trying to help us advance this investigation and bring these two children home safely. Uh, Can you give us the number? I'm sure I can find it as well, but if you have it there, the number that if people do see anything that they should get in touch with? Yeah, absolutely. The tip line is 604 599 7676. And we also have information available on our website because there is also an email address, um, Surrey Amber Alert at rcmp-grc.gc.ca. All right. Has this ever happened before, even uh, in, in for a smaller amount of, of time? Or has Verity Bolton ever taken the children or not returned the children when she was supposed to? I'm not able to speak to that specific history. What I can tell you is at this point in time, we do feel that there is an imminent risk to these children, which is why an Amber Alert was issued, and we are actively taking steps to try to locate them quickly and safely. And again, you, you mentioned then the last sighting in, the Cam, in Kamloops, so focusing on the Kamloops area. Is it possible, though, that they could be somewhere far from there in B.C. or even possible that they've, they've gone to Alberta or could be in another province? Absolutely. Anything is possible at this point. They do have access to vehicles. Uh, They have access to multiple trailers. And considering the last sighting of Verity was on July 15th, um, it is possible that they have traveled a significant distance. We have received some tips from Alberta and even as far away as Saskatchewan. However, with that said, we have no concrete evidence or nothing at this point in time to solidify that they have left the province. Corporal, thank you so much. Uh, We will continue uh, putting the information and the photos uh, out there. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. Just before the break, we were speaking with Surrey RCMP Corporal Vanessa Munn talking about the new information that has been released in relation to the Amber Alert that is continuing as the search for 8-year-old Aurora Bolton and 10-year-old Joshua Bolton continues. As we heard from police, focusing around the Kamloops area as that was the last confirmed sighting of their mother, Verity Bolton, but that was 10 days ago. That was on July 15th. There has not been a confirmed sighting since that one. So we are now checking in with the Missing Children's Society of Canada. Joining me on the line is Patricia Hung, President of Missing Persons and Police Partnerships with that society. Patricia, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. We are waiting and hoping that there will be some update on this missing 
to the two missing children that are missing from BC. We now know that the Amber Alert, though, is in its sixth day. How unusual is it to have an Amber Alert go on for six days? Right. Well, thankfully, most Amber Alerts don't last this long because the public comes forward uh, to report to the authorities. Um, We did have a case out of Florida um, last year that lasted two months, but that is and the the young man was found um, safe, but that is unusual as well. And while it might seem like each missing child case is similar, each investigation is unique. And what um, people sometimes think is that a parental abduction, as this is, isn't as high risk as a stranger abduction, but that's not the case. If an Amber Alert is activated, the police believe that there is a real sense of urgency and we need to respond as quickly as possible. So any information should be shared immediately. And um, certainly as an investigation progresses, it does become more complex, like as it goes on for six days or longer, hopefully not. And although I can't speak to um, this specific investigation, I can say that investigations, you know, they go in different directions. And something that um, investigators might be looking at initially may that may seem like a high risk uh, concern may turn out to not be at all and the other way around. So investigations can take a long time. But when um, someone is missing, the priority obviously is to find them and bring them back to a place of safety as soon as possible. So um, as time goes by, um, there may be um, increased stress on the individuals for example, in constantly trying to avoid authorities. So if an Amber Alert continues to go on, it's because the investigators know that there is a sense of urgency and that their lives are in danger and the messaging must continue until they are located. We got some new information yesterday from the RCMP saying they now believe that the family, those traveling with the two children who are the subject of the Amber Alert, that they, they've gone off the grid. How much more challenging does that make, if that is the case, in locating them? Well, um, I think that, um, again, I can't speak to this specific, this specific um, investigation, but police have resources. Um, that they use when looking for missing persons. So, for example, they might look at bank account transactions or um, interviewing witnesses. And when you're off the grid and not using any modern technology like credit cards or you're not seeing people, then that becomes more difficult. So investigative avenues can be hampered when um, someone is off the grid. And it may present, it may present additional challenges due to geography, perhaps hazardous environments, the elements, and uh, the ability to authorities to find them. But we have to remember that um, they will still need necessities, food, water, gas, which means they have to stop somewhere, which is why it's so important for the Amber Alert to continue and the messaging to continue to reach the public. And that's certainly something that we heard from the RCMP as well, saying that the public is very likely going to play a big role in finding these children. And you kind of touched on this also, that people might think that it's it's not as urgent, given that it's family members that are involved in the Amber Alert. But, but how important is it to keep that information circulating, keep that information out there for people to see so they don't kind of stop treating it like an emergency? Right. Well, 
Absolutely. Information from the public is of paramount importance. And um, I suspect that the longer it goes on, actually, that the public will become more invested. Like I have yet to hear anyone say, no, I don't want to help find a missing child. Everybody wants to help. So the more opportunities that present themselves to have the public aware and up to date, the better chance we have of finding them. And I, I invite all Canadians to visit our website and download uh, the MCSC website and download our rescue app. It is a free app that the public can see up-to-date information and provide tips anonymously, which go directly to the police. And that uh, technology, I wanted to talk to you about that as well. Before we get to, to more, and we'll make sure people know where uh, again and how to get that app. In this particular case, uh, and in that it is the the mother of the children who is the subject of this Amber Alert, but there are also police say they believe two other adults. So there would be three adults that are traveling with these two children. Does that say anything more or, or give you any insight into this situation? Is, is it more likely that the children will be found okay? The fact that it's, it's a larger group of people? I, I, I really can't answer that because we don't know the, we don't know the police may know, but we don't know the presence of mind of the adults which might dictate the type of danger the children in are in. We don't know the relationship uh, or the potential for violence between the adults. This is a tense situation. Um, are the pro- children the priority in their lives? These are the types of questions investigators um, look at in, in all missing uh, children or person cases. And um, they might also look at what is the motivation behind the abduction and is there going to be proper care for the children. So answering that question is it it we just can't know because there's just there's just too many factors at play. Uh, and what about the technology? You mentioned the app, and uh, and I like what you're, you're saying, too, and I think that makes a lot of sense, that people will remain invested. They will be very much uh, looking to, to try and help and to pass on any information that they might have or, or that they think is, is relevant to this. But how important is technology going to be, do you think, or, or how does it play a role in finding children and getting that information and getting that contact so immediately? Well, certainly, um, we are very lucky to have the rescue app that um, everyone can download, and it provides up to like it provides up to date information. Social media is um, very important because that information can can get out to the public, um, and of course, technology. People all have a lot of people have smartphones or phones that they can get this information at their fingertips. So, um, adding our app uh, also allows people to communicate um, directly through our app to the police with any information they have. And it doesn't matter. You may not think it's important. You might think, oh, I saw this and it's probably not. It's probably not important. It doesn't matter. That inform- Every little piece of information can help. It just takes one person and one, one piece of information that you might not even think is relevant and that is enough to solve the case. And using technology is is we are so lucky, we are so blessed that we have have the capability to use technology in helping find children missing. Patricia Hung, thank you so much for your time and for keeping this top of mind for people as this Amber Alert continues. Appreciate you joining the show today.
Oh, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who is helping to find these children. Some new numbers that were released from the BC Coroner's Service show 18 people died last year because of accidental drowning, and that was only in the Island Health region part of this province. It is more than the 10-year average of 15, and there are a lot of reasons why there are accidental drownings, but there is also a lot of attention being paid to this today because July 25th is recognized as well as World Drowning Prevention Day. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Kimiko Hirakita, Swim and First Aid Education Manager with the Life-Saving Society of BC. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Thanks for having me back, Jill. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Well, it's uh, unfortunate that we see these numbers going up, but I know uh, even today police said that uh, there had sadly been a case uh, of a man who went swimming off of Dunderave Beach in West Vancouver who uh, was last seen calling for help, and he drowned off that beach, uh, a very busy beach uh, often. Uh, When we look at accidental drowning, what are the main causes of this happening? I think we need to look at the choices that we're making around open water and then also recognizing that just because I can swim here, which might be a nice, you know, clean pool with lean lines and edges and chest deep water, isn't the same as swimming there, which is open water. So we need to recognize that the beauty of open water, along with the danger, is that it's always changing. So just because it looked one way yesterday might not mean that it looked the same today. And a really great example I have is that there are two missing boaters in the Okanagan region in Vernon from Okanagan Lake and Kalamaka Lake last night that the weather conditions changed quite suddenly and they have not yet found those two boaters. Which is, it's just very sad to hear about these stories and it does increase obviously because of the nicer weather and more people out and about. But does that also go to kind of an overconfidence that people have, especially with lakes, thinking that lakes aren't as dangerous as say open water on the ocean? Yeah, it is. And often we can misjudge distance in a lake. And I personally can, I can speak to this. I'm an open water swimmer. And when I went from transitioning to swimming laps in a pool to swimming in a lake, it was quite different to realize that what I thought was 100 meters was not in fact 100 meters. So often it's easy to misjudge distance without landmarks or shorelines there. And again, lakes can still have currents that, that pick up and well and if there's a little bit of wind it can move that water faster than you expect and do people take into account as well temperature even though in many cases it is warmer water at this time of year it can still be cooler maybe than what people are used to do people factor in kind of what kind of an impact that could have Absolutely. Like difference between cold water and warm water can mean your body's difference in adapting to that. If it's quite cold, and even if the surface of the water feels really warm, there could be some cold spots underneath that could actually on a hot, hot day send your body into shock. So when we're talking about things like cliff jumping, you might think that because I'm swimming on the surface of the water, this is fine. When you jump from a distance and you're going to go down further in the water, you could hit that glacier temperature, which can actually send your body into shock and lead you to going unconscious underwater. Hmm. Which you're right. We don't we don't think about that really a, a whole lot. You think, oh, even if you hit the cold water, it'll be a bit of a shock, but you'll just come back up, resurface, and, and that's how it plays out. Exactly. So again, we are... 
um, asking for wise choices, smart choices around water. And again, as you mentioned, yes, today is World Drowning Prevention Day. We also just came off of our National Drowning Prevention Week. So many of the communities all across Canada were doing activities to promote water smart behavior and water smart education. And it's on, it's on all of us. It's not just, you know, parents that need to supervise their children. It's if you go out with a group of friends, say you're out with five friends, are all five people there at any given time? So scanning your group and making sure that we are watching out for each other. Uh, some of the other numbers that were put out uh, when uh, looking at uh, Vancouver Island Health, and they had cited some of the numbers from the coroner's service as well, looking at accidental drowning deaths, but looking uh, more provincially as well, saying that alcohol and substance abuse are found to be contributing factors in about 38% of drowning deaths in BC, and uh, that 65% of boating accidents resulting in death also involve alcohol. Do we think about that enough or, or take into account that the relationship between alcohol or, or drug use, substance use, and being on the water? I think that we're so prone to being like, I would never drink and drive. I would never use cannabis and drive. We need to translate that thought to being in a boat or being on a watercraft. Why is it okay to go on a paddleboard, go on a kayak, go on a boat, and you know, use alcohol or cannabis or other altering substances, but you would never do that in your car. And we really need to have the same mind frame as that. The same goes for you wouldn't get in your car without clicking your seatbelt in. So why are you hopping on a boat and not clicking up your PFD? Is that something as well in that it's pretty common to be on a boat and make sure there are uh, PFDs, but not put them on, not have them on when you're out and about. Is that kind of a, a bad habit to get into? It is. And we all think that, you know, we're great swimmers, but you're not a great swimmer if you're unconscious if something suddenly happens or if the weather shifts very suddenly. So it's not good enough to just bring the PFD with you. You need to be wearing it. Everybody on board that vessel should be wearing a proper PFD that fits them. And when we look at the numbers as well, and again, this uh, being the prevention day, do we see anything else changing or, or as far as trends uh, this time of year, obviously because more people are out and about and enjoying uh, the beautiful lakes and waterways we have, but are we seeing anything else that's trending, uh, potentially trending in the wrong direction? We are unfortunately still seeing the trend of more males than females that are making up those drowning deaths. Um, males between the ages of 18 and 34 are more highly contributing. And that's a trend that's actually been like, consistent throughout the years, but it's one that we would like to educate on. The other thing that I really want to point out, and I don't actually know that I pointed it out on your show before, Jill, but um, children that are um, neurodivergent, so those that are on the autism spectrum uh, syndrome, they are 164 times more likely to drown than their neurotypical friends. So that's something to be aware of as well, that if, you're, if you know somebody who is ASD, has ASD, that they are more likely to wander and head to water. So we need to really work on our prevention and supervision there as well. No, it's a very good piece of information to put out there. Uh, there are often Often, well, not often, but unfortunately, we do also cover stories of people who go in to help somebody, whether they see somebody who appears to be struggling or they're going in to attempt to rescue somebody and they themselves end up drowning. What do you learn from that or what is your advice to people? Because I think it is instinct, isn't it? You see somebody who's in trouble, you want to try and help them. 
Absolutely. And I can actually, I can give an example of this. Two of my friends, um, one of them is a current lifeguard and one of them is a previous lifeguard. They were out doing a channel float and saw somebody drowning and the non-current lifeguard went in to physically make contact and save that person, whereas the certified lifeguard reminded them, hey, we need to talk to them first, throw something, keep yourself safe first, because you as a rescuer aren't going to be very good to a drowning person if you are then getting in trouble as well. So I highly recommend looking at our bronze medallion, which is our entry level into the life-saving program that will teach you the steps to be a rescuer around water as well as keep yourself safe. Isn't that interesting, though, when when it, even a, a trained lifeguard or somebody with that training and that background uh, is is falling into that as well without stopping to take a beat and making sure that everybody's safe? Yeah, exactly, right? And it's it's a matter of, you know, he hasn't been current, he hasn't practiced in a while to really hear that message come through from the Life-Saving Society that if you are going to be a lay rescuer, your number one priority is keeping yourself safe. That's going to be more effective to help the other person. And the other one that we see quite frequently, and I know how I would feel about this as well, is people that are going in to rescue dogs that enter rivers, creeks. And we need to remember dogs are naturally better swimmers than we are so even if it looks like they're struggling they were more likely to get to the edge and we have seen a couple deaths resulting from that this year as well. Hmm, That is a good reminder. Uh, One other uh, question I wanted to ask in that we have been talking as well about a shortage of lifeguards Uh, we hear uh, in Vancouver and other in other cities and municipalities that have popular swimming areas when there are perhaps not lifeguards on duty, maybe even in places where people are used to seeing lifeguards. But is there a connection as far as I know lifeguards are there to to save people, but they have a lot of other things that they do as well. Uh, What is the connection? uh, Are you less likely, I suppose, to to drown if you do choose to swim or, or recreate in a place that is supervised? Yeah, actually, there is a stat for that. So less than 2% of all drownings, actually, I think it's less than 1% of all drownings happen in lifeguard supervised areas. So they are happening in areas that are not supervised by lifeguards. And in a perfect world, we would say, yeah, it would be amazing if we had lifeguards on all of our waterfront. But it's just not realistic for BC, Yukon and Vancouver Island. We have so many beautiful waterways, rivers, creeks, ocean, lake, that it's physically impossible for us to staff lifeguards on all of those beaches. So it's important to remember to look out for each other, swim with a buddy, swim with supervision. Uh, Kimiko Hirakita, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Very good information and reminders. Appreciate you coming back on the show. Always happy to be here, Jill. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.